I understand that it might seem a little strange that we just sang Christmas hymns, considering that it's late January. Now, technically, if a worship song is familiar to a congregation and sound in its content, then we really should feel comfortable singing it year-round. But I do understand that these particular melodies and themes are so closely tied to the Advent season, it can feel almost uncomfortable or awkward to sing them outside of Christmas time. But it was actually very helpful for us to worship God with these songs because as we typically do every Sunday, we try to, to some degree, orient our entire worship service around the Word and what we're hearing from God that day. And today's passage is all about the very thing we celebrate at Christmas time, which is the incarnation. The word incarnation just simply means to take on flesh. And this very word actually comes from, now it's, you know, changed a little bit as the languages have changed, but this word actually comes from a word in our text this morning. Our passage then is to be considered one of, if not the most relevant passage in all of the Bible to the Incarnation. When you speak about the Incarnation, you speak about the eternal word, the Son of God taking on flesh. The incarnation means that the Son of God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it is officially Christmas time again at Redeemer. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18? And when you have gotten there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Thus saith the Lord, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Well, today we come to the end of the prologue of John. This is the last section in John's introductory prologue, and it ends as gloriously as it began. Some of the Bible's deepest and most precious truths are contained in this small passage that we just read. Its obvious focus is on the incarnation. That is, the word that we were introduced to in verse 1 has now been made flesh. He has become human. In John's summary of the incarnation, what he does here is he essentially gives us the reason as why the incarnation is not just so glorious, but so important. And I want to try to bring some of those reasons out. Why was there a necessity, why was there a need for Jesus Christ to take on flesh at all? Why do we need Christmas? And I'm going to give you three reasons that I think John gives us in the text today. And that is that the incarnation is... The three reasons for the necessity of the incarnation are consummation, salvation, and revelation. 
consummation, salvation, and revelation. So let's begin with consummation. What I mean by that is Christ came to fulfill or to consummate the Old Testament. To consummate something is to bring it to its completed end, to, to, to finish it off. And that's what Christ came to do. He came to bring the Old Testament to its own stated end. He came to fulfill or to consummate the Old Testament. This is somewhat of a subtle point that John makes, but it's absolutely in the text. It would be even more clear, by the way, if we were reading it in Greek. The language that John uses in the Greek is, is phenomenal, and we miss some of it in the English translation. I just want to give you a couple examples. Uh, in the English, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But that's a little bit of a loose translation. If you were to translate it very, very literally, then what John said was the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Or you could even say the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. Jesus came as a tabernacle. He came as a tent. And why should that be important? Well, because what that is telling us subtly is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tent of meeting place. He is the fulfillment of the tent which eventually became the tabernacle. If you remember, the tabernacle was built in the middle of the camp of Israel. So it dwelled in the midst of its people and the tabernacle was where God was. That's where God was housed in the tabernacle. If you wanted to speak with God or see Him face to face, He was in the midst of His people, tabernacled among them. And so what is John telling us? Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is now where you go if you want to talk to God. Jesus now is where God is housed. In the person of Jesus is how God dwells in the midst of His people. Jesus is the Old Testament tent. He is the Old Testament tabernacle. But I, I think there's less subtle ways, you don't need to know any Greek, to see that John is really trying to show us a, a fulfillment in Christ of the Old Testament. I think there's a very obvious way, and he does this by comparing Christ to Moses. He's trying to show us that when Christ became incarnate, he came as the new and better Moses. This happens in verses 16 and 17. Let's begin first in verse 16, because that's how he sets it up. Notice verse 16, speaking again of the Word made flesh, he says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now the ESV says grace upon grace. If you're reading from a different translation, it might say something a little different. It might say something like grace on top of grace, or grace from grace, or grace instead of grace. Um, it can be translated differently, and there are subtle differences in meanings depending on how you translate it. But for the most part, all the translations are communicating the general same idea. And this is that Moses brought, or forgive me, I got ahead of myself. The people of God received grace at some time in the past. But when Christ came, we received a new and better grace. We've received more grace. Grace on top of grace, or grace upon grace. Or your translations might even say grace instead of grace. A new grace, a better grace. So we once received grace, but now we've received capital G grace. Like big grace, new grace, right? And so he's going to explain that. What is he talking about? When did we first receive grace and how have we received a better grace? How can you get better than grace, right? And so that's what verse 17 is. 
He is explaining what he meant in verse 16. How have we received a new and better grace from our previous grace? Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's presenting two mediators to us. Moses was the first mediator of grace. God wanted to graciously covenant with his people. And Moses was the mediator. So Moses mediated God's grace to people. And all that was a type of Christ. For Christ has now come. And Christ now is the new Moses. Why don't we follow the Old Testament anymore? Because that's the old mediator. We have a new mediator now. We have a new prophet now. We, we don't use Moses now because we have Christ. He's the new Moses. And just like Moses had mediated the grace of God, Christ came and has mediated a new and better grace, a new and a fulfilled truth. Christ is the new and better Moses. He is the fulfillment of Moses' office. Now, it's amazing how easy it is to read verse 17 wrongly. It's very easy to read verse 17 out of context as if it's like bashing the law of Moses. It's very easy. Tons of people think that verse 17 is like a condemnation of Moses. Like Moses gave us the law. Ugh, Jesus gives us grace. They, put, they pit Jesus and Moses against each other. But in light of verse 16, we know emphatically that's not what John is saying. And ironically, it's quite the opposite. He's not pitting them against each other as enemies. He's saying Moses was the first establishment of grace, but now we have grace on top of grace. Now we get even more grace. The law, the gracious covenant law, God graciously de dealt with his people through Moses. And, that, and, and if you think that was good, guess what? God is so gracious and so merciful, he's got more grace coming. Grace upon grace. Grace on top of grace. John's purpose is not to expose the old covenant as some covenant of works and curses and all this bad stuff. And then Jesus rescued us from that curse-filled, terrible covenant. No, God only deals with his people in one way, graciously. The Old Testament was an act of grace. It was a blessing. It was not a curse. But what John is trying to do is he's trying to show us that as amazing as the Old Covenant was and as amazing as Moses' role was, if you stop there, if you think that's the end of the story for God, you are woefully mistaken. He's trying to show us how sad the state of our current Jewish people are today. And I don't mean that just racially. I mean that primarily religiously. Religious Jews are people who have stopped with the very thing that was never meant to be stopped with. They think the law of Moses is it. That's the end game. This is where God has given us grace. And John is trying to say, listen, that was a gracious thing, but it was also meant to set you up for an even more gracious thing. And you've missed it. You're stuck on the old grace, but in Christ we have grace upon grace. We have new grace. We have the fulfillment of the old grace. We have a new act of grace and truth that we're supposed to be clinging to. And so again, what is John trying to show us? That Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's the fulfillment of that gracious old covenant. And he has established then a new covenant. And that transitions nicely into our second reason why Jesus came. He didn't just come to consummate the old covenant. But in the establishment of a new covenant, in the establishment of grace and truth, covenantal grace and truth, what did he do? 
He established a covenant that saves us. He established a saving covenant. So that leads us to our next point. Why was the incarnation necessary? It was necessary for our salvation. Jesus came for salvation. Let's back up and read verses 14 through 16 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore a witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The word was made flesh to save sinners. That is the chief purpose of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's what verse 14 tells us. And because he became incarnate, we now have access to that grace and truth that he is full of. So we have received in his fullness, from his fullness, we have received grace and truth. And let me ask you this. According to the Bible, what's the primary cause of grace and truth? What does grace do? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. When John says we have received grace upon grace, he's talking about you have received the fullness of salvation. Jesus came to save you from your sin. But grace has an important relationship to truth. Jesus isn't just full of grace, he's full of truth. Because here's the thing, we don't want to think of God's grace as just like this invisible bucket of water that he dumps on unsuspecting people. So you just kind of wake up one day saved. Wow, I feel different than I did last night. I must have had a weird dream. No, God's grace comes through channels. And the way that God's saving grace comes to us is in the truth of God. It comes to us through the gospel, through the proclamation of God's saving gospel. So there's a sense in which you're saved by grace. But because grace is always in the package of truth, there's another sense in which you're saved by truth. You need divine truth to be saved. And if you think, well, you're making connections I don't see here. This is what Jesus says. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You need grace and truth to be saved. You need grace in the form of truth to be saved. And Jesus came as the fullness of grace and truth. He is the fountain of all grace. He is the fountain of all truth. And those are the things that save sinners. Those are the things that set us free. The incarnation was necessary to give us access to saving grace and saving truth because we are saved by grace and by truth. By the way, this idea of being saved by truth, that sounds kind of awkward because we don't talk about it a lot, but that is what John goes back to in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John is very, very intent. He really wants us to see that Jesus came to make the Father known to us. Jesus' chief aim in this life was so that you and I could know God the Father. What relationship does this have to salvation? Jesus tells us this in his high priestly prayer. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see the relationship between grace and truth and the knowledge of God? Those are the things we need to be saved. And those are the things that Jesus is the fullness of. The incarnation was necessary for the salvation of sinners. But that last point transitions as well into our third and final point. 
The incarnation was necessary for consummation to fulfill the Old Testament. It was necessary for salvation to save sinners. But it was also necessary for revelation. The primary reason, you could argue, that John at least emphasizes, the primary reason for the incarnation As a matter of fact, you could say the entire prologue of John, not just our section, the entire prologue of John, the primary purpose of it is to teach us that Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. Jesus' chief mission was to make the Father known. Christ is, in other words, the supreme and final word about who God is and what God's will for us is. God spoke in a lot of different ways to his people and it was gracious, clear, beautiful testimony. But the chief, primary, supreme way that God has spoken to us is not through prophets, but through his son. Jesus is the revelation of God that eclipses and surpasses all other words about who God is. However, what John is doing in verse 18 and and emphasizing how Jesus came to reveal the Father to us is he's really uh, basing his argument here in not just who uh, Jesus revealing the Father to us, but in who Jesus is, who is the Son. Because here's, here's the question we all have to ask. Moses told us a lot about God. Right? Moses received a message from God and he revealed it why is Jesus so much better isn't Jesus just doing the same thing he's received a message from God and he's told it to us in other words what makes Jesus' word so much better than the prophets why should I care so much more about what Jesus has to say than what anyone else has to say what's so special about what he's saying about the father you see John knows I cannot convince these people of my main goal which is that Jesus' word of the Father is the clearest, supreme, and final word of the Father. Unless they have reason to believe that Jesus' word is better than all other words. And so that's why as John is emphasizing Jesus' role in revealing the Father to us, he has to also emphasize why you should care about what this guy Jesus has to think. What's his answer to that? Why is Jesus better than Moses? Why is Jesus better than all the prophets who came before him? And John's answer to that is because Jesus is God's son. John's answer is because Jesus is the son of God. Look at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came with a unique glory, a glory that Moses didn't have, a glory that Isaiah didn't have, a glory that Ezekiel didn't have. He comes with this unique glory. What glory is it? The only Son of God. He brought the Son of God's glory to earth. We have seen the glory of the only Son of God. That's why you should listen to Him. Again, He hammers that again in verse 18. How does He conclude the prologue? No one has ever seen God The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Right? Notice, by the way, just briefly how this parallels verse 1. It clarifies verse 1. In verse 1, we were told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was both with God and the Word was God. And John parallels that here and gives us further revelation. So what's the difference between the Word and the God the Word is with? 
the Word, who is also God, the only God, according to verse 18, the Word who is God can be seen as the Son of the Father. So now we can go back into John 1 and we can understand it. In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God. That's how verse 18 clarifies verse 1 for us. But again, back to the main point, because Jesus is the Son of God, He is now the only one who has ever seen God. He is the one who for all eternity was at the Father's side. His Sonship gives Him this unique relationship eternally to God. And John's whole point is here is to say, that's why you should listen to Him. Moses received amazing revelation from God, but Moses received minimal information that God spoke to him from a distance and he had to hide his face. When, you, when Jesus speaks about God, he's speaking about the, the one whom he has seen, whom he has been with for all eternity. He has a unique relationship to God that nobody else has, which is why we ought to listen to him. He can reveal the Father because he is the Son who has always been at the Father's side. Now, I would love to end the sermon there. We're done technically. But I think there's something really important. I think all of this raises a question that maybe some of us are afraid to ask. Okay, I get, I get that John is telling us that Jesus has a unique relationship to the Father. He was at his side in the beginning with him, yet they're both God. Okay, I get all that. But why is he called Son? Like, what does it mean to be the Son of God? John tells us, he came with the glory. What glory? The glory of the Son of God. What does that mean? And here's why this can be more confusing. Because the Bible is speaking of Jesus as the only Son of God. Here. But there are lots of places where lots of other people are called sons of God. Angels are called sons of God. Christians, Romans 8, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Even all human people, Acts 17, Paul says that because God created every person, they become his offspring. Every person you meet is a son of God in some sense. Every Christian you meet is a son of God in some sense. Every angel that helps us is a son of God in some sense. So why is Jesus being a son of God so special? We're all sons of God. And why is Jesus being called the only son of God? We're all sons of God. What on earth is so amazing? What does it even mean to be God's son? Now let me warn you, the answer to that question is extremely theologically deep and complicated. But it's important to discuss it. And so my goal is to tell us a longer explanation, sort of a complex explanation and if you feel comfortable with that, fantastic. But if you're, you leave the end of it and you feel like you've just confused me more, I'm going to try to give a simplified version, okay? So we're going to do a complex answer. What does it mean to be the Son of God? And then we'll end with a simple answer, okay? So the complex answer begins with understanding a doctrine called eternal generation. This is a very important doctrine in Christianity. What's called eternal generation or the eternal generation of the Son. And what does eternal generation mean? It means that the second person of the Trinity is from the Father eternally. For all of eternity, so this never happened in time, for all of eternity, the Father's essence has generated the Son. The Son's essence comes from the Father's essence. He is generated from the Father. 
Another way to think of the word generation, which might have a little bit more helpful application for you, is the word begotten. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. He comes from the Father. His essence comes from the Father's essence. And here's why that's important. This is why we can affirm that the Son and the Father have the same nature. This is why we can affirm them as one God because they have the exact same nature because the Father has communicated His nature to the Son, His essence to the Son. So the Son comes from the Father and therefore shares His essence. And that's why the Scriptures like to use the analogy of begotten. Because that's basically, in, in a very imperfect way, that's what it means to beget a child. A child is born from you and he receives your human nature, right? You will never give birth to a dog. You will never give birth to a chair because there's no chair and dog in you to communicate. Because the son is communicated from the father, he can only receive what the father is. And so the son and the father are the same. They have the same nature, the same essence because the son comes from him. Matthew is my son. So he has my DNA, he looks like me, he shares my human essence, he shares my human nature, right? That is a, an imperfect and rough biblical analogy of how to understand the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity. One generated the other, one begat the other, one receives his essence from the essence of the other. And this is the analogy, by the way, God chose to describe himself. This is not the musings of later theologians. This is biblical language. Now, part of why you may have never heard this before, there's a lot of reasons for it. I think one of the main reasons why we've forgotten this is because our English Bibles have largely moved away from the word begotten. I think that that's uh, played a role. In the Greek, there's a word uh, monogenes, monogenesis, only generated or alone begotten. And in John 1, Jesus is referred to as God's monogenes, His only generated, or His only begotten. And this is why, and, and every time, by the way, this word monogenes is used in the Old Testament, it's used of a father begetting a son, a father having a child. So that's why we use father-son language, and that's why the, old, the older Bibles have used the word begotten. The newer Bibles have argued that it's more accurate to say something more about uniqueness. That's why the ESV says he's the only son from the Father. So some scholars argue, well, we shouldn't think of this word as only begotten anymore. And the reason they do that, just this is not in my notes, this is for free. The reason they do that is because sometimes um, a, a parents with more than one kid will have a child who's referred to as the only begotten. The greatest example of this is Abraham. Isaac is referred to as Abraham's only begotten son. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No. He had Ishmael. But God deemed Isaac the only begotten one. Why? Because Isaac was special. He was the unique son. And so some modern translations have stopped referring to Jesus as the only begotten. And instead they refer to him as the only unique son of God. And now this is, by the way, I'm not bashing on this. This is not inaccurate. That's an accurate way to translate the Greek. And it's true, right? Like I said, there are lots of ways in which creatures are referred to as the Son of God. And so this translation helps us understand Jesus is the Son of God in a different way than you and I are. 
in a different way than angels are, in a different way than humanity is. He is uniquely God's son. But I think, though, it would be better for us, in order to join with our ancient heritage, to continue to use the word begotten. So notice how the King James Version translates it. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why do we call Jesus the Son? Because the Father begat him. The Father generated him, and him only. By the way, even the modern translations use the word begotten up until very recently. So the NASB, for example, went away from begotten, but all the way up until 1995, they were still using it. This is the NASB 1995 version. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I prefer this word begotten. I think it helps us understand this doctrine better. Jesus is begat from the Father. He comes from the Father. Everyone else is creatures. Everyone else is created. Jesus alone is begotten. Now, I need to make some important qualifications. First, the Father-Son language is an analogy. It's a biblical one, but it's an analogy nonetheless, right? God the Father doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a wife. He did not beget Jesus literally the way we beget our children. It's an analogy. Jesus' begettingness, begottenness, is metaphysical. Our begettingness is biological. So again, it's just an analogy. And because it's an analogy, there's always ways in which it falls short. There's always ways in which it is imperfect communication. But nonetheless, we are to, to some degree, think of... Jesus is being born from God. That's why he is his son. And again, that's why he has the exact same nature as his father. And Jesus tells us that. He says this to Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the father, or forgive me, whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Right? So Jesus is not saying, I am, I am the father. And we know that from other passages in the Bible where they're distinct. But to see Jesus is no different than seeing the Father. They have the exact same essence, the exact same nature. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. Because the Father has begotten him. He has communicated his essence to the Son so that they share an essence. This is why the book of Hebrews also could tell us these very things. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But he speaks in a new and better way now. Something better than the prophets. And what could possibly be better than the grace of the prophets? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Okay, so he's spoken by the son. What's so great about the son? Here's what's so great about him. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What's so great about the Son? He is exactly like God the Father. They have the exact same nature. So much so that he is God's glory. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. If you've seen him, you've seen the glory of the Father. Because the Father has communicated his exact essence to his Son. Eternal generation. One of the most important ways, however, I need to continue to qualify this, and this is where the word eternal comes from, is not only is Jesus' begetting metaphysical, which means that it, it carries off the entirety of God's essence, right? Like Matthew isn't just a clone copy of me, 
Jesus is a clone copy, so to speak, of the Father. They're exactly the same. So that's one way where the analogy of son, father falls short. Another way it falls short is that our begetting happens in time. There was a time when Matthew was not, and then I begat him, and now he is. We cannot think of the father-son relationship that way in Scripture. There was never a time when the son was not. It's not as if the father existed and then one day thought, I'm kind of lonely. It'd be nice to have a son. And then he communicated his essence to another. And then Jesus was created. That is not how we are supposed to think of it. God never created the son. Rather, he is eternally begotten. means, yes, his essence does come forth from the father. But this has always been the nature of God eternally. This never happened in time. God never decided to beget a son. God has just always been in the present tense begetting of his son. The son has eternally existed from his father's essence. Now, based on how I used to think of this and how a lot of evangelicals think of this, there's a good chance that a lot of people in this room right now are just thinking, this sounds like a whole lot of philosophical speculation and not a lot of Bible. This sounds like a lot of speculation, philosophy, and not a lot of Bible. Where does the Bible say anything about a communication of essence? Aren't we just like speculating? I, I want to assure you that this language is absolutely the outcome of biblical texts. The fact is we have to wrestle with the fact that the Bible uses language like father and son. We can't escape that. How is Jesus begotten? How is he a son? To not answer those questions is to disregard biblical revelation. They weren't arbitrarily. God didn't just pull words out of a hat. He gave us these words to teach us something. They mean something, and we need to figure out what that means. We have to understand that in some sense, Jesus comes from the Father, because that's what Father-Son means. <laughs> By very definition, fathers beget sons. Yet, on the other hand, we also have to affirm what we already saw in John 1.1, 1, 1, that Jesus is eternal. Remember what John 1 said? That he was in the beginning with God, that all things that came into existence came by him, and nothing that was made came into existence but by him. He is the unmade maker of all things. He is the eternal one. So we have to, in some sense, affirm that Jesus comes from the Father because he is the Son, but we can't assume that that means he's created because he's uncreated. So in other words, we need to understand him as begotten, but not created. And that's why we have to get into this deep conversation, because that's what the Bible teaches us. He's the uncreated, begotten son. So in some sense, we need to understand that Jesus is begotten. He's born from the Father, but he never came into existence. He's always existed. And that's where we get the doctrine of eternal generation. He has eternally forever been generated from the Father. He is unbegotten. Or forgive me, God the Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten from his Father. Now you say, okay, I understand you're making sense of the biblical text, but this still sounds bizarre to me. I don't want to believe this. Do I have to articulate? Do I have to learn this stuff? Well, let me assure you of this. If, I'm hoping it might make you sleep a little better at night. Um, these are not just the ramblings of my philosophical mind. I did not come up with this stuff in my study this week. This is not even just the ramblings of our Reformed tradition. This is not even just the speculations of the Protestant movement. 
This is what Christians have been affirming for thousands of years. And there was a long time in the period of Christian history where the stuff I'm saying to you was basic Christianity to people. It was like, yeah, duh, we get that. We've, we've known that for a long time. Let's move on. Denying this stuff is actually novel. Affirming this stuff is what Christians of every denomination have been doing up until the 20th century. The, 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 the first time that this really came forth, the language that I'm using here really came forth, was in the very famous council that we affirm today, the Council of Nicaea. We confessed, here are some of the words that this church put into your mouth earlier today. That Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. So in eternity, He was begotten. He was born, but He didn't have a birth. He's from the Father eternally. You confess that. And then it gives us some analogies. God from God. So he is God, but he came from God. Light from light. He is light that was born from other light. True God from true God. He's not a lesser deity. He's fully God in every sense of the word that the Father is. And that's why we confess he is begotten, not made the same essence as the Father. We already affirmed eternal generation. And it was from a definition written hundreds of years ago. Jesus is begotten from God. And this is why he is able to be fully God and yet in some sense still distinct from God. What does that sound like? John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but He was God. Unity and distinction, eternal generation preserves them both. Uh, keep in mind also that Nicene theology was so standard for Christians for so long, it very casually comes up in a lot of the Christmas songs that we sing. You've been singing about eternal generation for years and didn't even know it. For example, this morning we sang, Come All Ye Faithful. And what did you sing in that song? You sang that the word is true God of true God, light from light eternal. Eternal generation. He's the light that came from light. He's the true God that came from the true God, but this has been the case eternally. Humbly, the light from light, the true God of true God, entered the virgin's womb. Son of the Father, begotten, not created. You sang that this morning. You've been singing that for years. It's going to show up in the song we're about to sing after the sermon, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, where you're going to sing, As the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless days. Where did he get that metaphor, light from light? That's from Nicaea. The sun is the light from the light. But where did the sun come from? From some point in creation? From endless days. He's the endless light from light. He's the eternal light from light. He's the eternal son. He is from the light. He is from the true God, but he is not created. He is begotten, but he is not created. Now, with all those qualifications in mind, you're, many of you still might be thinking that's still too confusing for me. That's fine. This is something we have to all develop in our understanding of over time. So let me just try to make it really simple. We call Jesus the Son of God because he receives a divine nature from God the Father. To make it even shorter, we call him the Son of God because he is from the Father. And that this understanding is key to him being fully God. And if you think, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that, just know the Jews in Jesus' day understood this. The Jews in Jesus' day took this as just something to accept. It was not a difficult philosophical thing. Why do I say that? Notice what they say in John 5 about Jesus. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews knew when Jesus says, I am the only begotten of the Father, that he was saying something more so than just, I'm just created. Or I'm just a believer. Whatever he was saying when he claimed to be the Son of God, the Jews understand it as he was saying he was equal with God. And here's the thing. From our perspective, doesn't that make no sense? Right? How is a son equal to his father? By, by definition, sons are lesser because the father created them. They're dependent on their father for creation. So sons are by virtue lesser than their fathers. And that's why fathers have authority over sons. They're lesser. So Jesus comes around and says, I am God's son. And the Jews said, so you think you're equal to God? Where did they make that connection? Why didn't they go, okay, phew, the guy obviously thinks he's less than God. He's not claiming to be God, guys. He's claiming to be God's son. They understood to claim to be the son of God was to claim to be God. Why did they understand that? Because they understood that the eternal begotten son receives the same essence which makes him equal. It makes him the same. They didn't see this as philosophical mumbo jumbo. They already understood it. And that's why they killed Jesus because he claimed to be God's son which meant he was claiming to be fully, equally, eternally God. Jesus, the Word, is God's Son. He shares His nature with Him. He is at His Father's side eternally. And this is why He has a supreme, unique, saving revelation. This is why we must cherish and hang on every word that Jesus has ever spoken or ever taught His disciples to speak. Because He is God's only begotten Son. And this divine, eternal Son was made flesh. And he needed to be made flesh to consummate the Old Testament, to save the world, and to reveal the Father to us. And the effect of this incarnation, let me just close with this, should be to increase our love of God. Uh, how could our hearts not just swell with love and joy when we meditate on this amazing truth that God became one of us so that we might receive an abundance of grace and truth? What other religion offers this to you? Where else are you going to go to find something like this? You see, in the religions of men, God is barely anything different than some distant, abstract concept. He's just a cold, transcendent philosophy. But our God, yes, He does transcend us. But He saw the distance, He looked at the distance, and He found a way to close the gap. He condescended to us. The God that we cannot touch, you will one day touch. The God that you cannot see, you will one day gaze upon with your own very eyes. The God that you cannot hear will one day speak into your ears. God became flesh, and I submit to you, nothing could possibly show us his love for us more. Nothing could possibly make us love and worship him in return more than this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead seen.